Again, my name is Justin Keller, and I bring you greetings from Jefferson Park Baptist Church, so where I am a member and, uh, and part of their teaching rotation there as well. So I also teach at the Regent School of Charlottesville. I have uh, two kids, my wife and my two daughters are unable to be with us this morning. My, my older daughter is teaching toddlers this morning uh, during our, our Bible Basics class, and so we had to divide and conquer this morning, as it were. So, But it would be a real pleasure to be able to have them join us at some point for worship. So I'm very pleased to be with you this morning. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 22. The text which we'll be looking this morning is, is Psalm 22. But before we begin talking about that, I would like to pray once more for the preaching of God's Word. So would you join me in prayer? Father, I ask that, that you would be pleased to help us to understand this word this morning, that you would be at work in us through your spirit, that, that he would be at work through the word to write its truths upon our hearts, to help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly, to draw each of us to a firmer faith and a deeper repentance. So help us to see wonderful things in your law today. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his gospel. Amen. Well, most of us have felt lonely at some point, have, have, have felt the sadness of feeling all alone. And in fact, now I, I didn't realize this until I, I started preparing this psalm, but in the U.S., this is actually a significant mental health problem, and, and the COVID pandemic just exacerbated the problem with the feelings of, of increasing isolation. Our greater dependence upon digital technology is making things worse. In fact, according to one recent study, over a third of Americans struggle with loneliness. Almost two-thirds of young adults struggle with feelings of isolation and loneliness, with feeling abandoned, with feeling forsaken. And it might be tempting to us to dismiss those sorts of feelings, to minimize that. But, but if you've ever felt alone, then you know what a terrible experience that is, that feeling abandoned is awful. And if you're suffering, then it's even worse. When you're experiencing pain, when you're experiencing hardship or loss, and it feels as though the people who are supposed to be coming alongside you, who are supposed to be helping you through it, who are supposed to stand with you, when it feels as though they've left you, it's hard to imagine a worse feeling. And that's actually what Psalm 22 is about. Psalm 22 is about feeling abandoned, feeling alone. See, in the Psalms, God has given us words that we can use to pray to him. The Psalms are the, the songbook and the prayer book of God's people. They were meant to be sung and prayed. And there are Psalms for all of life's struggles and difficulties. If there's an experience, then there's a Psalm for it. Right? And in Psalm 22, what we're about to see is that King David feels abandoned, he feels isolated and alone. And it's not just his friends. What we're going to see is that David feels abandoned by God. He feels that God 
has forsaken him. Now, David was a man after God's own heart. He knew what it was like to experience deep fellowship with God. He wrote, for example, Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Or in, in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So David understood deep fellowship and communion with God. But here in Psalm 22, that's not what he's experiencing. In Psalm 22, in the midst of great suffering, David feels as though he has been forsaken. He's alone. But there's something even more remarkable about Psalm 22 when we, when we look at it in its broader context in the entire Bible. That as Jesus Christ hung on the cross, it appeared as though everyone had abandoned him. His friends, his followers had fled. When he was arrested, he stood alone against the power of the religious leaders in the Roman Empire. He was despised and rejected. And to everyone watching, it certainly appeared as though God had abandoned him. And on the cross, Jesus quotes from a psalm. I'm fairly confident he knew them all by heart. And of all the psalms that he could quote while he's hanging on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in Mark 15, 34. So why that psalm? Have you ever thought about that before? If you're familiar with the the accounts of the crucifixion, have you ever thought about why did he pick that one? Why pick Psalm 22? I have to believe that he picked this one on purpose. And so as we look at Psalm 22, that's the question that I want you thinking about. Why did Jesus pick Psalm 22? What did Jesus see in this psalm that fit his suffering and death on the cross so well. So I want us to understand Psalm 22, and I hope that will help us better understand what Jesus has done for us. So the first section of the psalm that we're going to look at as we walk through this is verses 1 through 8. So I would invite you to follow along as I read that for us now. Psalm 22, we'll start with verses 1 through 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So what we see in verses 1 through 8 in this first section is that David is torn between his feelings and his faith. He's torn between what it feels like is happening and what he knows is actually true. Do you see that from reading through that? He's going back and forth between what it appears and between what he knows. See, through this first section, 
He's vacillating. He feels abandoned. But his theology is too good to believe that he actually has been. Right? He feels as though God has forsaken him, but he knows better than to give in to those feelings. Even in the very first line, you can see the tension in David's thinking. He calls out, my God, my God. Because he knows God. Because he enjoys the blessings of covenant with God. He's a child of the covenant, a member of God's covenant people. And Israel has seen the faithfulness of God to deliver them over and over again. They'd received the promises made, excuse me, the promises given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. When they were slaves in Egypt, the Lord delivered them by hardening Pharaoh's heart and sending plagues against the Egyptians. He preserved them in the Passover and led them through the sea. He gave them his good law at Mount Sinai. He fed them in the wilderness. He gave them victory in the promised land under Joshua, when they disobeyed him and were conquered by foreign peoples, he raised up judges to deliver them from their oppressors. He had promised David the throne and made a covenant with him to adopt David's sons as his own and to grant one of them an eternal throne. See, Israel has seen the faithfulness of God to deliver them over and over again. David has seen the faithfulness of God to deliver him over and over again. See, that's why it says in verse 3 that God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's why it says in verse 4, and you are fathers trusted and you delivered them. See, David has expectations, well-founded expectations, rooted in God's covenant promises given in his word verified in his own experience that God will deliver him. He knows that. Then why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God seem to be listening? Have you ever felt that way? And everyone else seems to have abandoned him too. You see that in verses 6 through 8. David feels like a worm instead of a man. He is mocked, despised, rejected. His mockers are saying, if he trusts the Lord so much, if God is so pleased with him, then let God rescue him. Do you see the logic there? It's actually sound logic. If God were so pleased with David, then God would rescue him. Straightforward conditional statement. But God isn't rescuing him. Therefore, God must not be pleased with David. That's a valid syllogism. The premises are wrong, though. And that's the problem with it. But you see the tension. Do you see the tension in the text here, in these first eight verses? The tension between what David knows is true from God's word and how his circumstances feel. If you see that tension, and if you've experienced that tension before, then you're ready for what David does in verses 9 through 18. So let's go ahead and take a look at the next section of the psalm. Psalm 22, 9 to 18 says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb, who made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. 
I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so here David is describing the, the, the suffering that he is experiencing, both physically and emotionally. He continues to call out to God to ask him to draw near. From his very infancy, he has trusted the Lord. God has worked in his soul to grant him the grace to have faith. You see that in verses 9 through 11. But at the same time, he recounts the immense suffering that he is experiencing. He's surrounded by his tormentors. There are bulls and lions and wild dogs that he's talking about, verses 12 to 13, and then again in verses 16 and 17. Right? It's as though he were surrounded by wild animals who can't be controlled, who want to destroy him. That's what it feels like. Maybe David wrote this during his youth while he was a shepherd fighting actual wild animals. Maybe he wrote this while he was running from Saul, hiding in the wilderness as Saul tried to kill him. Maybe he wrote it while he was fleeing from Absalom, evacuating Jerusalem as his own son led a civil war against him. Maybe he wrote it at the end of his life, looking back on all of those experiences so that this psalm represents all of them. We don't know. But we do know that he is experiencing hardship and trial. And his anguish is so great that it feels as though his heart is melting. His bones are coming all out of joint, verses 14 and 15. The way that we might put it today is that he's falling apart and can't hold himself together. He's coming unglued. His enemies are ready to pounce and divide up the spoils, even the clothing that he is wearing, taking everything from him. That's what it feels like. David is in anguish, and perhaps you've experienced anguish like this before. I I have experienced significant physical pain due to health problems in the past. I've felt abandoned. I have been betrayed before. I don't know that I've ever experienced anything like this. What David is describing here, this is a whole other level. Not just the physical pain, but the emotional pain that he is experiencing. So, if David is able to find a way to persevere in the midst of what he is suffering, might that be helpful to you and me in the trials that we experience? Might that be helpful to us so that we can come through and remain faithful when we suffer? I think so. So let's see what happens then in verses 19 to 21, which is the turning point of the psalm. So verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. But you, O Lord, such beautiful words. Are there more beautiful words in all of Scripture? But you, O Lord. This is not the only time 
that, that we see this sort of a shift. There's a strong contrast happening here. He's recounting all this suffering, but you, O oh Lord. And that's the turning point. That's the turning point. We see the same sort of shift in Romans 1 through 3, the same sort of contrast in that part of Scripture. Romans 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul is telling us that all of us are idolaters, that all of us have, have worshipped and valued created things instead of the Creator, that all of us have fallen short of God's perfect moral standards, and as a result, all of us deserve nothing but the wrath of God. But then you get to Romans 3.21, but now. There's a sermon in those two words, but now. Right? Do you hear the change? I was condemned. But now the righteousness of God saves me. You see the same thing, the same sort of shift in Ephesians 2. I was dead in my transgressions and sins, without hope, without God. I was by nature an object of God's wrath. And then Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy. I was dead and condemned, but God made me alive. And it's the same sort of contrast, the same sort of shift here in Psalm 22. I am mocked and despised. My suffering is overwhelming. My enemies question whether you are with me. Everything around me says that I am forsaken. And then verse 19, but you, O Lord. My enemies scorn me. My circumstances seem helpless, but you, O Lord. My own body is on the verge of collapse. But you, O oh Lord, David feels forsaken by God. He cannot see what God might be doing about it. But you, O oh Lord. Though everything else fail, though everything else appears hopeless, David calls upon the Lord to deliver him, to save him, to rescue him, to draw near and come quickly. And in the rest of the psalm, verses 22 to 31, we see the results. So let's look at that now. 22 to 31. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat in worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And so now in verses 22 to 31, you see David is called upon the Lord. We've seen that shift, that turning point, And now we see how God answers David's prayer. We hear the taunts of the mockers drowned out by the songs of the faithful. David pledges that he will join the assembly of the faithful 
and call upon them to praise the Lord for his faithfulness to his covenant promises, verses 22 to 24. He knows that God is heard, even though his circumstances don't look like it yet. The time will come when those whom the world despises, God embraces. When the poor and the needy worship and feast alongside the rich and the powerful. When those whom the powerful have persecuted will be restored and given a place at God's banqueting table, verses 25 and 26. We see all the families of the nations, not just Israel, but the entire world, gathering to worship the Lord and to acknowledge that He is the King. God's salvation is not just for ethnic Israelites, it's for the Gentiles as well. That's not just a New Testament thing. It's in the Old Testament too, verses 27 to 28. Those who are physically broken, whose bodies, who, whose bodies and whose health have failed them, they shall be made whole, verse 29. It appeared that all was lost, that David was cut off from the land of the living. But not only shall David live, but the next generation, and then the generation after that that hasn't been born yet, they shall serve the Lord as well, verses 30 and 31. God's promises are good now and in the ages to come. It's a remarkable, dramatic reversal from what we saw at the beginning of the psalm. But focus in particularly on verse 24 right now. I want you to look at verse 24. Had David been abandoned by men? Yes. Did he feel abandoned by God? Yes. Did he suffer and face tremendous opposition? Yes. Did it look as though all was lost? Yes. But had God forsaken him? What does verse 24 say? No. No. Not forsaken. Not abandoned. And out of David's suffering came praise and glory. So now, that's Psalm 22. I asked you a question back at the beginning of the sermon. Remember? Why did Jesus Christ choose this psalm? He hung on the cross, surrounded and taunted by his enemies, abandoned by his friends, nails piercing his hands and feet, his body beaten and bleeding, his physical strength draining away, and of all the psalms that he could recite, and he knew them all by heart. Why choose Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think you can probably see it at this point. Had Jesus been abandoned by men? Yes. In his humanity, did he feel abandoned by God? Yes. Did he suffer and face tremendous opposition? Yes. Did it look as though all was lost? Yes, 
But had God forsaken Jesus? No! The Father did not turn his face away. Remember Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four: For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Hear what Hebrews 5, 7 has to say. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. God did not hide his face. He did not turn away from his son. He heard his cries for deliverance. And through his suffering, he became the source of salvation for all who believe in him. He was heard by his father. Your salvation rides on that. Consider Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? King David's greater son was not abandoned on the cross. It was through the Holy Spirit that Jesus offered himself to God. The Spirit was there. God's Spirit was there, strengthening and sustaining Jesus so that he could offer himself a sacrifice for sins without fault or blemish to the Father. The Spirit was there. The Father did not reject his Son, even as the Son was suffering under God's wrath. The Father received Christ's sacrifice, and out of the suffering of Jesus come eternal praise and eternal glory. My brothers and sisters, hear today the good news of the cross. As Jesus hung on that cross, bearing the sins of the world, satisfying God's judgment against sin, suffering in the place of everyone who trusts in him, Jesus chose this psalm on purpose because he knew what was happening. Because he was fully in control of the situation. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what was happening, and he was absolutely certain of the outcome. He knew that his father heard his cries, despite what it looked like. He knew that his death was ratifying a new covenant in his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. He knew that the father would gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, young and old, rich and poor, broken in body, and just broken in spirit. to be Jesus' brothers and sisters. He knew that he would rise on the third day. The possessor of a new and indestructible life. That God would vindicate his son. And he so desired to obey his father, and he so loved you and me, And so desired our deliverance from the penalty and the power of sin that he was despised, rejected, mocked, insulted, beaten, and killed. So that we might feast with him forever.
Think about that as you're taking communion. So, let me bring this home in two ways. First, by pleading with you a little bit, come to Jesus Christ by faith. Look, just because we're gathered for worship as a church, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that doesn't mean that everybody here is trusting fully in Jesus. Maybe you are. But I need to plead with you for a bit. Come to Jesus today. Some of us might be trusting in other things, in our own righteousness, in in our church attendance, in our our good works, whatever it might be. And, and, And this idea of trusting in Christ alone is brand new. Come. Some of us might be be trusting partly in Christ and, and partly in our own good deeds. Some of us might think that we can contribute something to justify us before God. Maybe, maybe we think that, that yes, it is true that, that God and God alone can forgive me, but I, I somehow need to earn that forgiveness or be worthy of that forgiveness. or that we must do certain religious activities not out of gratitude, but in order for God to look favorably upon us in the first place. And here's what's amazing about things like that is that you can know better and still find yourself doing it. Some of you know what I mean by that. I know better. I know that I can't earn God's favor, and yet I find myself trying to do it anyway. Beloved, See what the Savior has suffered for sinners. What could you possibly add to what we see in Psalm 22? Jesus Christ has paid it all. And see how the Father hears his cries. What could you do to cause the Father to listen more closely? You have his full attention. And he calls those who believe his brothers. He invites us to a future family reunion in which we celebrate together forever and ever. You cannot add anything to the abundant grace of God. So come. You could think of it this way. If you were going to buy a a house or a car, and good heavens with interest rates today, that is expensive. But if you were going to buy a house or a car, imagine for a moment that a, a wealthy friend offered to buy it for you. Right? Okay. Let's throw in the, the, the insurance and the taxes too. He's going to cover the whole bill. And then you go, well, you know, I, I'm really grateful for, for that offer, but I really feel the need to, to pay for it myself even though I can't afford it. And then you reject the offer. What is that? Why would you do that? Right? If someone made that offer, why would you say no? Would that be arrogant? Would it be ungrateful? Or, or let's do a, use a different example. Let's say, and this one hits home for me, I have two teenage daughters. My time's coming with this. Let's say your daughter's getting married, hopefully not in the next couple of years in my case, but, but soon enough, your daughter's getting married, and your friend owns the very best, most expensive restaurant in the area, and he offers to cater the wedding for free, no strings attached. And you go, no, 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 thank you. That's okay. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you turn that offer down? You follow me on this, right? 
ingrate? What's wrong with you? You're being given a gift. Receive it. Right? If that's the case with, with a wedding reception or, or with a, buying a home, how much more so with eternal salvation and a place in God's family forever? Friends, when we think that we can add to what Jesus has done, how are we not being arrogant or, or ungrateful? This is wonderful news. All that God requires to accept sinners is that you admit you need a Savior and receive Jesus by faith. Will you receive him today? And then, will you continue to come to him, trusting him, depending upon him, treasuring him? Come. There's also a warning here. There's salvation no other way. Christ's sufferings are not only sufficient, they are necessary. There is no one else who has the Father's ear like this. There is no one else that the Father listens to the way that he listens to his Son. There is no salvation other than in Christ and in him alone. So come and keep on coming. That's first. Second, For all of us who believe, whether you've never known a day in which you didn't trust Christ, or this is the very moment in which the Lord is first kindling faith in your heart, or you live somewhere in between that, which is where most of us are, right? Regardless, take comfort today. There is comfort in this text. When you feel alone, are you? No. When you feel alone, you are not alone. You have a Savior who knows what it's like to feel forsaken. Listen to these words from Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, what a good word. Do, do your life circumstances leave you feeling overwhelmed? You are not forsaken. Have you become a Christian and now, now your old friends and your family no longer understand you? You are not forsaken. Have you suffered a great loss, the end of a dream, the loss of a job, the death of a loved one, and you feel empty and alone? You are not forsaken. Are you afraid of the future? A future without a pastor? You are not forsaken. Go back and read Psalm 20. Not now, later. Go back and read Psalm 22. King David knew the truth. And he cried out to God. And he reminded himself of God's covenant promises. And he persevered. And more importantly, your Lord knows the truth. He made those promises. He died to secure those promises. 
and he sympathizes with you. He knows, and he hears your prayers, and he sees your tears so that you can cry out to him. Remind yourself of the promises found in God's word and know that he will never leave you and never forsake you. Would you pray with me? Father, as we prepare to approach the table, I thank you for this word from Psalm 22. What a fitting word as we approach communion, as we eat and drink and are reminded of Christ's broken body and shed blood. And yet, in his brokenness, in his suffering, we know that he was heard. And because he was heard, we know that we can have confidence. Confidence to approach you, Father. Confidence that you hear our prayers. Confidence that you will meet our needs. Confidence that through your spirit, you will supply everything that we need in order to remain faithful to you to the very end. So grant us grace and draw near to us now, even as we draw near to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.